Good morning, everyone. We will never take a deep breath again without being very blessed to know that clean air is a gift from God. What a week it's been. We pray for God's mercy in the weeks and months ahead. Today's a special day, a lot going on. It's New Members Reception Sunday. In the New Testament, the church is called the body of Christ, a people called by name and gifted by the Holy Spirit to bring into the world the kingdom of God. The church consists of all those persons who have made a confession of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have submitted to the sacrament of baptism together with their children. In our tradition, church members have given a testimony of their Christian experience to the session that is to our elders, followed by a service of public declaration, which is today. And so I invite to come forward facing me for five questions that we ask in every reception of new members in the Presbyterian Church in America. I invite to come Harold and Nancy Dalton, Anna Fry, Carolyn Landman, Chris and Jeannie Lehman, Ryan and Samantha Singer, Munir and Nurmeen Tawadras, and Laura Tope. One of my great joys in leading these classes is getting to know them, hearing their stories, being blessed by their interaction, finding out how they came to this particular church, but more importantly, how they came into saving faith as a great gift from Jesus Christ. And so our five questions are from our Presbyterian Church in America Book of Church Order and answer with, I do. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, except in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And finally, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and its peace? <clears throat> Follow with me as I pray, believing God to bless these new members of Springton Lake Presbyterian Church. Our Father God, we bring them to you in Jesus' name. They are your children and you know them by name. You've called them, each one, to come, follow me. And so they have come to this church at this time, and we are blessed by their presence. I pray, Lord Jesus, in every way that you bless, financially and physically and spiritually, emotionally, use them as your ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. I pray that each one of them would find their place in the life of this church. I pray that they would be networked with friends, 
I pray that they would come alive for Jesus in the workplace and in their neighborhoods and among us as we fellowship together. May they be blessed, O oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now turn and let's greet them appropriately. Don't leave yet, don't leave yet. I now invite our elders to come and greet them with a friendship or a kiss in the Bible by the right hand of fellowship. Adam's a hugger. <laughs> See, hugger. <laughs> now you may be seated. Today is also a special day for Austin Tope, who has requested to be baptized. In this sacrament, water reminds us that we are cleansed from our sin by the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. Will baptism save Austin? The answer is no. We are saved from our sins and the punishment that we deserve only by trusting in Jesus Christ the Son of God, as our Savior. No sacrament, no rite, no tradition, no work that we do of any kind can save us. The Apostle Paul made this very clear when he wrote to the Ephesians, saying, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, I know you're looking out that window. That is not deadly smoke. That's barbecue smoke. <laughs> That's good smoke. <laughs> now, two things happen when we are baptized. First, we identify with Jesus Christ. Just the request of it, the public notion of it, Standing before the body of Christ, be it large or small, is an identification with Jesus Christ. Ever since Adam and Eve broke God's law by eating the forbidden fruit, God has been calling the people to return home, to be forgiven and united once again with God as their father. This big family is called the church. And all those who identify with God's son as their savior are called Christians. Second, we confess that Jesus is the Son of God when we come forward for the sacrament of baptism. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be 
save. And so Austin, come down with Elder Scott Hegman, who will ask you a couple of questions. Austin, we're here. You love Jesus. You tell everybody that you love, you love Jesus. What did Jesus do for you? Did Jesus die on the cross? For, for my sins. He died on the cross for our sins. You can say it loud. Sins. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross for our sins. He died on the cross for our sins. Amen. For your sins? For our sins. And my sins. Does Jesus live in your heart? Oh. Right. And you come to church to worship him, right? Worship him. And sing hymns, hymns. songs of praise. Praise. You going to be baptized? Baptized. Is good enough for God? Is good enough for me? Oh, but you stand right here with your friend if you like. Austin, I baptize you in the name of the Father. And in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Father God, what a delight to have this young man stand before the body of Christ here at Springton Lake. The seed was planted in his heart many years ago by faithful prayer from his mom and others who love and know him and our church family. And so he is here declaring by faith, I love Jesus who died on the cross for me. Oh God, bless this young man, I pray. Put your hand upon him. Open his mind and heart to the things of God from your word. And as we sing the praises, may they resonate in his mind and heart 24 hours a day. Thank you for his mom who has loved him and cared for him. Thank you that he's a part of your church family. As we witness it today in Jesus' name, amen. Good to have you with us, brother. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us as a church over this last year. We thank you for your faithfulness to us as individuals and as a body. Lord, we thank you for one of the ways that you're manifesting that today with these new members that have come to join our fellowship. We thank you for each of them, as has already been prayed. We're, we're asking that they would find uh, their place to serve and to be ministered to and to be built up in their faith. Lord, you know our heart's desire is that this church would be an outpost of your kingdom in this community and that your kingdom would go forward from this place. And we pray that you would do that in each of our hearts and lives and in our new members in particular this morning. We thank you for Austin for your work in him. Thank you for his joy in you that is evident Sunday after Sunday. Thank you for the grace you have for Laura as she cares for him and raises him. And Laura, would you help us as a church to love this family well? We thank you for bringing them to us. God, there are so many needs in the body. This week, we pray for Pat Kropinicki, who's in Bryn Mawr Hospital. Lord, we pray that you would give doctors wisdom as they treat a bowel obstruction. Would you be merciful to our sister, guide the physicians, and bring her home soon, we pray. 
We pray for Virginia Fitzpatrick, who fell and broke her shoulder. Uh, Lord, so many issues that she and Neil are dealing with, God, would you be merciful to them? Would you give doctors wisdom about how to proceed and and what would most uh, expedite healing for her? We pray that it would come quickly, Lord. We pray for Judy Savage as she recovers from an extensive shoulder surgery. Uh, Lord, would you bring healing to her body? Would you give as he loves her and cares for her? Uh, Lord, would you return her to us quickly, we pray. And Father, we pray for, <coughs> excuse me, Chris Clark recovering from the oblation. Uh, Lord, would you bring healing to her body? Uh, and we pray that this procedure would resolve the, the heart issues that she's been dealing with. And Father, we pray for Stephanie Branch, (coughs) having lost her father last Sunday. We pray that you would comfort her in her grief. Thank you for his clear profession of faith as in his final days. And we pray that you would strengthen her, uh, that she would be your ambassador this week at the memorial service on Thursday, that you would strengthen her, that you would give her your words to speak as she engages with extended family and friends at this time. Would you help her to grieve as one with hope? And finally, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful book that we've been studying over these months together. Uh, Would you bring the truths home deep into our hearts? Would you help us to carry them with us as we go forward? So would you bless Rick in the preaching of your word and the teachers as they teach the children downstairs? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, it gives me great joy to introduce my nephew, Clive Shue, and his oldest son, Carter, and 11 of his classmates at the Morrison Academy in Taichung, Taiwan. They are in the United States for about 10 days as uh, college-bound students. Their parents providing for them to go visit some of the great colleges and universities in America. They went to Duquesne, the University of Pittsburgh, they went to Drexel, they went to Penn, They're on their way to Princeton. They're going to see MIT and Harvard. So I'd like them all to stand. Here they are, right to my right. We had a barbecue with them yesterday, and they are delightful. They're going to join us, so please greet them downstairs during our barbecue. Now, on Sunday, January the 8th, I said this, Paul's letter to the Philippians will be our preaching text until the end of June. Even as a prisoner writing from Rome under house arrest, Paul directed the hearts of his dear friends to live with the joy of knowing Christ. And on that Sunday and many others followed, I or David would remind you to ask some questions seriously of yourselves each week. Do I have a right attitude? What is the right attitude for a follower of Christ when faced with disappointment or change? How can I learn to rejoice in every situation? So today, nearly six months later, we conclude with two final questions. What impact has Philippians had upon your life? 
despite your circumstances? Are you experiencing the joy of knowing Jesus Christ? A joy that is real, not theoretical? After we examine the last 10 verses of chapter 4, and then a brief overview of each chapter, highlighting the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's the big theme that I'm going to emphasize today. I will give you in this room an opportunity to stand and share a verse from this letter that has meant something profound to you. A verse that jumped off the page week after week after week. Stand and read it aloud and bless our hearts to see how God is working among his people. And so, Father God, as we turn to your word now, I pray that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the conclusion. Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 to 23. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's a great letter, isn't it? I love the beginning and the conclusion and everything in between. But he finishes the letter notably with gratitude a virtue in short supply. Today the world and too many in the church have no awareness of the providence of God, the large care of God. Listen to a definition of providence from the Westminster Confession in chapter 5, verse 1. God, who created everything, also upholds everything. He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing from the greatest to the least by his completely wise and holy providence. He does so in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the voluntary, unchangeable purpose of his will, all to the praise of the glory of his wisdom and power and justice and goodness and mercy. Today, however... It seems like we live in an age of entitlement and expectation. But that was not the world of the Apostle Paul when he wrote this letter. Providence was a grace that he learned over time. 
And nowhere is there a more eloquent statement about God's loving care than in verses 12 and 13 that preceded what I just read. Let's go back and look at those two verses. I'm sure somebody's going to stand and quote these two verses. If you don't, I will. He wrote this, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In the latter part of this letter, it would seem to me that the great Apostle Paul, the most famous Christian perhaps of all time, and certainly in this age, maybe only second to Simon Peter, he's very vulnerable at the close of his letter when he reminds his friends that they were the only church who cared for him financially. He just put it out there. In Acts 16 and 17, Luke tells us, that a vision in the night of a man urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us, was given to Paul to declare his next assignment. In effect, Paul left Asia, crossing the Aegean Sea, going west, and he went to Europe, directed by the Holy Spirit. And some have argued that we are here in the West, Europe to America, Canada, North America, because of this story. And the first place where he preached was in Philippi. These are called Philippians. They live in Philippi, located in a Roman colony, which the Holy Spirit knew ensured that the roads and the infrastructure were maintained, that their language was spoken, and that their customs were observed, and that Roman citizenship was highly regarded. And it allowed the gospel to spread fast on a superhighway in a different time. It's a wonderful story of how the church started. And when Paul arrived in Philippi, Luke tells us he went looking for a prayer meeting, trying to find the people of God. He knew they were there, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's not alone. And found some women who were worshiping God by a river outside the city. And one of them was named Lydia, a businesswoman who sold purple goods. In Acts 16, verses 14 and 15, Luke wrote this. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, a river's close by, so they didn't have a basin. They went probably right into the river. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, quoting Lydia, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so right from the beginning, Lydia and her friends supported Paul financially. And so later when he traveled to Thessalonica and then Berea and Athens and Corinth, they sent a gift along with him to cover the expenses of his team. And then over many years, his letters and by fellow travelers, Paul would send to them firsthand reports of his ministry. He is connected with them in his soul. 
But then one year went by, and then two, and then three, and maybe four, with no news from Paul. Raising concerns in the community of faith in Philippi. Was he alive? Has anybody heard anything? Is he in prison? We'd heard a rumor. Did he have any money? Was he destitute? But now in our story, which is the letter of Paul to the Philippians, and particularly chapter 4, they have a final report that he was arrested and imprisoned in Rome. And so the church sent another gift by Epaphroditus. That's what we saw in the first chapter. He shows up with a gift. This young man who would later become very ill and almost die. And he brings him up again in chapter 4. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Oh, the joy that must have resonated in our hearts when they heard read for the very first time the church gathered in Philippi that Paul was so deeply appreciative. But as we all know, giving is complex. People often give for selfish reasons, expecting something in return, but not in this situation. Here Paul takes a moment to share with his friends what really warmed his heart about their gift. Of course he's filled with, with gratitude. I'd imagine the gift was very large. I'm sure he might have, oh, that bag is heavy. Praise God. And then he handed it to one of his colleagues. But his greatest joy was knowing their love which prompted their gift. And then Paul, in this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives the body of Christ a great gift, the gift of truth, when he writes verse 19, look at it. And my God, we could say our God, will supply every need of yours, just like he did mine, and has been doing, and will do, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is Paul at the end of his letter proclaiming the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ above all, above all, sufficient is Jesus. Earlier this week when I read this story again and again, it reminded me of the great hymn. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. It was written in 1890 by Samuel Francis. One night, Samuel in London, England, on a bridge overlooking the Thames, contemplated suicide. He was on the other side of the rail. But then he experienced a divine renewal of his faith. What he had been taught as a child came into his mind and heart. And he stepped away from death. He would live to write many poems and hymns describing what Paul had experienced. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. 
Then Paul finishes his letter with two benedictions. One is not enough. He's so full of gratitude. In verse 20 and 23. And then two greetings. Notice, 21 and 22. But the second greeting is revealing and amazing. Look at it. Verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles in the early days of the church were arrested for, quote, healing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. These miracles were designed by the Spirit of God to testify to the truth about the resurrected Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But they also provoked great jealousy among the Jewish leaders who had never healed anyone, ever. And so the high priest ordered them to stop. But Peter replied, the fishermen, the bold fishermen now by the Holy Spirit, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Luke, the historian who followed them and recorded every word, wrote this. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Jewish Pharisee named Gamaliel stood up and spoke these words to his colleague. So in the present case, my brothers, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not only be unable to overthrow them, you might be found opposing God. And then Luke wrote, so they took his advice, but they still beat them. Now, many years later, despite all of his sufferings, all of his indignities, the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone all the way into the heart of the Roman Empire, into the capital city itself, into Rome, right into, I quote, Caesar's household. The word household in Greek refers to the imperial civil service. The palace officials, the secretaries, those who collected taxes, in effect, those who were responsible for running the empire. An empire that at the height of its power controlled 40% of the world. It stretched from the north at Hadrian's Wall in Great Britain all the way to the east of the Caspian Sea, south to Egypt, and west across all of northern Africa. Think about it. The people of God set apart, that's the word saints, were now global ambassadors for Christ with their salaries paid by the Roman Empire to do the will of God. All by the Spirit 
So a man who had suffered and was now chained to a new guard every day and day after day after day with joy despite suffering. He pointed to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus who he claimed and the spirit would convince them was still alive having been resurrected from the dead. Think of it. A crucified Jewish Galilean carpenter in just over 30 years had begun to rule the rulers of the greatest empire in the world. And think of this, as predicted, 400 years later, Rome would be in ruin. But the faith delivered to Paul by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus with orders to proclaim it has spread on the roads of Rome and was flourishing to the glory of God. And so now, fast forward 2,000 years, we can repeat Paul's benedictions for they still apply in our time to our God and Father. Be glory forever and ever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And so they've come from Taiwan. Our new members have come from many places in the region and the country. And Austin has come to be baptized in Jesus' name. Now, there are many themes in Philippians. But the one that stands out to me is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Sufficiency. This is what it means. To be adequate for the purpose to such an extent that it always leads to the occurrence or existence of a given thing. Paul understood this very well. Listen to what he told the Corinthians in another letter. Not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So that's the letter, chapter 1. Paul begins his letter by expressing his deep affection filled with joy for his partnership with the Philippians and the gospel ministry. He knows beyond doubting that he who began a good work in you is sufficient and he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Above everything else, right from chapter 1, he is eager for his friends to be deeply satisfied in Jesus Christ. He would say if he could stand before them face to face, he is the sufficient one. Trust him, trust him, look to him. And he prays to that end in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. And yes, he tells them, I am a prisoner in Rome. I have suffered, but no power on this earth has my heart but Jesus. Paul had set his hope on Jesus Christ and every guard, every day, every week, every month heard about Jesus. Paul was courageous, even as a prisoner in the service of Jesus Christ. And it is, he wrote in verse 20 21, my eager expectation now and always that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is that not a man who is satisfied in Jesus, the sufficient one? 
And I ask the question, are you? Am I? As citizens of the 21st century, in modernity, with so much wealth and so much power and so much pleasure, oh, to keep your eyes on Jesus is a great challenge. Chapter 2, Paul directs his friend's attention to Jesus in chapter 2. This is a high watermark passage. This is the Mount Everest. The highest example, he said, is humility found in Jesus Christ. He writes in verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He tells them that only Jesus is adequate for this purpose. Why? Because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The sufficiency of Jesus is on display among the angels. Chapter 3, Paul declares that his confidence and joy come from trusting Jesus. His birthrights, his education, his achievements are insufficient. They are as trash to him. That's the word that he uses compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I thought to myself this week, I wondered when he was dictating this portion of the letter, if he was reminded of the voice of Jesus years before, who told him to stop asking for deliverance from his thorn in the flesh. Stop, 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 three times. And the reason... Paul told the Corinthians, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so in chapter 3, Paul told his friends that that day was coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And I say that what I've learned in that chapter is only Jesus is sufficient for that great day. And finally, in chapter 4, Paul gets to the heart of his contentment, a great gift. Through years of trusting and testing, Paul had learned that his joy and peace and his security and strength did not depend upon people. Nobody was dependable compared to the sufficient one, Jesus Christ. And so he told them that I've learned a secret. I've learned the secret. And it was to take all of his concerns to God by prayer. And this too he learned from the Lord Jesus that he is ever near, only a prayer away. So Paul is eager in closing to tell his friends in Philippi, Jesus knows what you need. Jesus knows how you feel. So why burn your mind and your heart with anxiety when you can take everything to God by prayer? And so Paul writes one of the great passages when he says, this is how you pray. Leave it with him by faith and receive the glorious riches of God's peace when you pray. A peace which surpasses understanding and this supernatural gift will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And you need guarding because the devil's not going to give up. He's crazed 
He's a liar and cannot be trusted. And he hates the Jesus that lives within you. When Paul wrote to Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus, Galatia, he always had the same rhythm and the same convictions and the same priorities. And so this is the theme even in the book or the letter to the Corinthians. And God is able to make all a grace to bound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's what I learned from Philippians. Now, I want to hear from you. We want to hear from you. What jumped off the page? Bibles are leather and paper and ink, but they come alive by the Holy Spirit. You can have your devotions on an iPad or a PC or a handheld. You can have a big leather one or a family Bible, and you're reading it, and all of a sudden, whoa! So what's the woe for you? Stand and read the verse that shaped your heart over the last six months. One of the greatest letters ever written, I'm sure, has impacted many of you. Michael, amen. Michael Harris, we're going to take a mic, so David's going to run around, and if you stand up, he's going to find you, and you can talk into this mic, okay? All the way to the back, Scott Orthy. Just remain standing, and you're going to get called upon. We're going to start the annual meeting right at 1130, so we've got nothing better to do before we sing one more song. Well, uh, I can speak loudly enough, I think. Okay, here we go. Um, Chapter 4, verse 8, um, Paul has just empathized about the anxiety that the church is feeling in Philippi, and he gives this advice. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's how to deal with anxiety. Amen. Right behind, right behind you, David, and then we'll come over here to my right. Two parts, uh, Philippians 3, uh, 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection. And part two was, uh, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. The lake's right behind you. Um, I've been a, a believer for just over 50 years. When I came to Christ, um, a scripture 
popped off the page at me, and it was Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And I pray this almost every day. It is my prayer that my love may abound more and more, that I might approve what is excellent and be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That, Amen. May that be a prayer for us all. Thank you, Judith. Peter. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Amen. Joanne Lamont over here, Dave. And then Stephanie and up here to David. Um, I think this verse really pertains to us as a congregation as we sit here today. Uh, this is from Philippians 1, 27 to uh, 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Nyla, right behind you, Dave. Later, Nyla. Okay. Just so simple. Um, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Just being reminded to rejoice in the Lord always. Amen. Stephanie. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. You all heard that my dad passed away last Sunday. And the Lord answered my prayer. I had been praying for years for confirmation of his salvation. And the Lord blessed on his deathbed. And I truly have the peace of God knowing his salvation and that I will see him again. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> so mine is Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, because he's not done with me yet. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Just stand up. I did a... We got one up here yeah, standing on I'm the sorry. stage. I'm, I'm, I'm dittoing David's Philippians 1.6. He that began, and I'm doing it from the King, Ver uh, King James Version because that's how I memorize it. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And that has been my theme verse pretty much all my Christian life, considering all some of the things that I've gone through. God has not forgotten me. And every time I trip up and every time I fail, and I've done that a lot, he reminds me that I'm not done with you yet. And the work has to go on, and he will continue it in me. With that, let's stand and sing our closing song, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me.